0: before I get started, uh, uh, I want to claim Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8 that um, we will receive power, you and I, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will be his witnesses uh, here and to the end of the earth. Kenosis by Lucy Shaw. In sleep, his infant mouth works in and out. He is so new, his silk skin has not yet been roughed by plane and wooden beam, nor so far has he had to deal with human doubt. He is in a dream of nipple found, of blue-white milk, of curving skin, and pulsing in his ear the inner throb of a warm heart's repeated sound. His only memories float from fluid space, so he new he has not pounded nails, hung a door, broken bread, felt rebuff, bent to the lash, wept for the sad heart of the human race. When I was uh, eight years old, uh, the United States uh, celebrated its 200th anniversary of of existence, the bicentennial. Uh, The year was 1976 and it was a big deal Uh, commemorative coins were minted the then President Ford participated in events like an international Navy review of tall ships from many nations and even hosted a dinner with the Queen of England and her husband Prince Philip in Philadelphia Queen Elizabeth had presented a replica of the Liberty Bell that replica was forged in the same foundry in England as the original bell of the United States and it was a commemoration the inscription on it said for the people of the United States of America from the people of Britain. Let freedom ring. Johnny Cash was the grand marshal of the bicentennial Boat parade. The Smithsonian did a long exhibit on the bicentennial and opened its newest museum, the Air and Space Museum. Uh, I, I remember that. NASA held out the rollout ceremony for the new spacecraft that was called the Space Shuttle. It was an inspiring year, especially for an eight-year-old. I remember several things about that year. One was that my family vacationed up near the Boston, Massachusetts area, and we walked the Freedom Trail, which is an historical walk you take throughout the city of Boston where you visit sites that were historically important to the forming of the United States. The other thing I remember is visiting the traveling exhibit on this uh, vehicle called the American Freedom Train. The Freedom Train uh, came to our, um, our city, Wilmington, Delaware. This was a train that traveled the country in 1975 and 76 that celebrated the Bicentennial. It was a train, quote, of 10 displays converted from baggage cars. The trains carried more than 500 treasures of Americana, including George Washington's copy of the Constitution. The original Louisiana Purchase, Judy Garland's dress from The Wizard of Oz, Frazier, Joe Frazier, boxing champion, his trunks, Martin Luther King Jr.'s pulpit and robes, replicas of Jesse Owens' four Olympic gold medals that he won uh, in front of Hitler in 1976, a pair of Wilt Chamberlain's basketball shoes, and a rock from the moon. You can imagine those items as a kid walking down and seeing those items as they fired a kid's imagination. So why do I share this moment of a memory from my childhood and the history of our country? Because I see parallels between us in this country, in this culture, in our church, big and little C Church, and the time of Isaiah. In 1976, it marked 36 years after World War II, an event that engulfed the world. From that time, the U.S. and much of the world lived in relative peace. You could say that continued even through the 80s and the 90s. I say relative, but of course, because of course, it wasn't a perfect peace, and there was turmoil. In our history, there was the Civil Rights era, the Vietnam War, Watergate, and the ever lingering influence of the Cold War. But this was also true of the time of Isaiah. The kingdoms of Isaiah in the north and Judah in the south, as well as the nations around them, had lived in relative peace for over 70 years. But there were still issues, whether close or distance at that time. Kings, leaders were corrupt. Distrust lingered between the smaller nations and even threats of war. And the kingdom of Assyria, the superpower at the time, still fought wars, whether it was the Babylonians uh, or the Medes or the Persians and others. But these were more internal strifes than all out wars. There was even a cold war of sorts between Assyria and Egypt and a little known kingdom in the north called Urartu. I didn't know much about Urartu until recently, but it was up in what is now Armenia, eastern Turkey. And sometimes uh, this, uh, this thing with the Urartu kingdom got hot, but nevertheless, a peace prevailed in Judah and in Israel. There are also parallels with how that affected the culture of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. The peace that prevailed for so long had had an impact. I want to quote John Oswalt on this from his commentary on Isaiah. It's quite good. Here it says, he says this, quote, A word must be said here about the nature of apostasy into which Israel and later Judah fell. Apostasy meaning um, unbelief, wrong belief. This is pungently defined in the book of Hosea chapters 1 through 3 and Ezekiel chapters 16 and 23. You can read those on your own. It's pungently defined in these two books and chapters as prostitution, the debasing of oneself with unworthy lovers for gain. For the Hebrew people his is uh, for the Hebrew people his is forgetting God, that is, forsaking their sole allegiance and obedience to him and serving other gods, particularly those representing power and fertility. Such a denial must also carry with it the abuse of those weaker than oneself because the primary goal has now become satisfying one's needs through manipulation and the environment. Thus, for the prophets, idolatry, adultery, and oppression are always indissolubly linked. Oswald is saying the creep of corruption fell into this relative peace for the 70 years And it was based on forgetting God. Nothing else. Does that sound familiar? Perhaps a little too close to home right now. This is why I think Isaiah is a book very appropriate for our current historical moment. It is an extensive book, 66 chapters. And we can relate to the prophet Isaiah. We all can relate to him. We are living in a peace coming off a long period of prosperity. We are in a moment where we struggle with the drift away from God, whether we see it in culture or church. We see manipulation and gain, not just for our physical, not just of our physical environment, but also other environments, whether real or digital. And we have to deal with the reality that we have prostituted ourselves to the unworthy lovers. And not just as a community, but also as individuals. And I will deal with this a little later on in the sermon. For this morning's passage, I want to address two areas related to this chapter. One is calling it the Advent between the Advents. The second is the specific hymn of Isaiah 11. And then I will wrap it up with some thoughts on how to apply these things to our lives. What do I mean by the Advent between the Advents here? To help me explain... And for you to see this point, I need you to either draw a small diagram or imagine it in your mind. So if you have something to draw on and with, get that, maybe be near an uh, appropriately socially distant uh, fellow family member, uh, or draw it in your mind in, the, uh, in your imagination, on the board whiteboard of your imagination. Draw a line from left to right. OK, so let me do it this way for you from le- your left, right. And along that line, put four hash marks evenly spaced along it. Over the first hash mark, write 7 to 8 B.C. Over the second hash mark, write 33 A.D. 7 to 8 B.C., 33 A.D. Over the third, write 2020 A.D. And over the last one, write the word tomorrow. Now, in this diagram, we all in this moment currently reside in that third hashtag of 2020 A.D. We have read a passage, and I am preaching on a passage, that was written way back at the first hashtag of the 7th or 8th century B.C., the time Isaiah lived. The prophet Isaiah is said to have lived sometime in the early 700s and late 600s, or B.C., before Christ, or B.C.E., Before the Common Era. To give you some idea of what was happening around the world in that period, Homer had written the Iliad and the Odyssey around 800 BC. The city of Rome was established in that century. The Olympic Games started in that century that Isaiah lived in. Jonah did his prophesying to the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh in the mid-700s. The Assyrian kingdom had been strong for several centuries, The Babylonian people were rising in strength as well as the Medes and the Persians, but they were still weaker than Assyria. The main ruler at that time was named Tiglath-Pilesar III. Say that five times fast. And he extended the power and influence of the Assyrian kingdom significantly. In fact, he was the one who eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and marched many of of its inhabitants into exile to Assyria. Lots of intrigue was going on at this time. You should look into it. There is a lot to read and watch about this period. So this was Isaiah's world at that time. And we, in 2020, are more than 2,700 years away from that time. Now, the 33 AD hash mark is the time Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ's ministry, death and resurrection occurred. And the tomorrow hash mark is... Represents our future, whatever may come. So imagine if we could go back in time to that moment when Isaiah was writing his stuff, even this chapter, and we were with him there. So there we are, perhaps in prayer and meditation with Isaiah, as he reflects on uh, the messages, the images, the ideas he's getting from God. It could be very words. It could be images. And he's writing this down. Now, when he writes about the future person coming and a new kingdom being established, say, for example, when he writes in verse one here, a shoot shall come forth. He's talking about a person there and he would have understood that analogy. And the people at the time would have understood that analogy in the same way. So Isaiah was writing about an event that would happen in the future. The coming of a savior, a righteous king, a messiah. Advent means a coming into place or an arrival. And that is what Isaiah is writing about here, a coming, an arrival, a particular coming. Isaiah's Advent was looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah. Now, as someone like us visiting Isaiah from the 21st century, we, of course, if we had time, could enlighten Isaiah right there and then and tell him that it happened, Isaiah. The Messiah comes in the first century A.D. That is why the second hash mark with 33 A.D. above it is on the diagram. 7, 8, 33, 20, 20. Isaiah's advent was fulfilled in Christ in 33 A.D. And that is what we celebrate here and now, symbolized in these candles. The advent of Jesus of Nazareth being born to Mary and Joseph in time and space in Judea. But returning back to our time on on this diagram, we realize that that Advent, that Advent is even more than us looking back to when God became incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But Advent, by definition, is looking forward to something that is coming. So here we are, Advent, looking back at something that Isaiah even further back wrote about. But we're also Advent means looking forward. So, by definition, it means looking forward to something, not looking forward to what has already arrived. The opposite of Advent is actually arrival. I looked it up, (laughs) thesaurus. However, there is a second Advent, the anticipation of yet another arrival. We see it here in Isaiah. Look at verses 6 through 9. This is the part about animals who were adversaries, Predator and prey are now living in peace. I don't know about you, but when I watch nature shows on streaming uh, services, I don't see lions laying down with lambs or infants sticking their hands into dens of vipers because there's nothing to fear. We still live in a world of peril, but not a world of peril that is without hope. Why? Because we live between the first and second advent. We live in a world where at the time Isaiah was writing all the way back there about both Advents, though he may not have completely understood that. He may have thought, like the disciples in Acts 1-6, that the coming of the king, the Messiah, was to be accomplished in one fell swoop. In Acts 1, they asked Jesus, understandably so, Lord, Rabbi, are you now going to establish the kingdom? Here, the disciples, perhaps like Isaiah, would have, who knows, assumed the whole shebang of Jesus finishing the job of not only the resurrection thing, but also ushering in the new kingdom of the new heaven and earth was going to happen. They've they've thought that right there. Is this when you do it? And Jesus' reply to them in verse 7 of Acts 1 is, It's not your business for when the Father wills, what the Father wills for this. In other words, Jesus said, No. But what is fascinating is what he says right after that in Acts 1.8, which I claimed for us at the start of this. He says, but you, he says, no, it's not for you to know this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Isn't it interesting? Jesus here ties a question about the end of times, the eschaton, when Jesus will wrap up this whole show with being empowered by the spirit and being witnesses on, to all the earth, not just part of it, all of it, he connects the eschaton with our witnessing. Now, I only gave that a little bit of thought, and I need to think about it. That's 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 huge. There's something there. I'll talk more about that. Well, and it's not only about the eschaton, it's with the spirit but I'll talk more about the spirit later. Now let's go back to the diagram. So here we are, 7, 8, 33, 2020, tomorrow. So here we are in 2020 looking back at something written in the 7th and 8th century about an event that occurred in 33 AD, looking forward to yet another significant event that will happen tomorrow or sometime in the near or distant future. Think about it this way. The scripture says that to God, a day is as a thousand years. And what? A thousand years is as a day. So to God, one thousand years, I don't know somebody with math, one thousand years, how many days, how many hours. That one thousand years is like 24 hours for God. So our 24 hours would be like a thousand years for God or our thousand years would be like 24 hours with God. It's like he's beyond time. So how long ago did Isaiah write that stuff? 2,700 years ago. Or just under three days ago. How long ago did Jesus come? 2,000 years ago. Or two days ago. So we can all together with Isaiah look forward to a coming. And yet at the same time rejoice that one of those advents already happened. Which is different from what Isaiah was looking forward to. He was looking forward to both. We are in the advent between the advents. We see this season as we do every year. We celebrate that Jesus the Christ, God incarnate, arrived, lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and rose again defeating death. Hallelujah. But at the same time, we are celebrating an advent of hope. Remember, it's a coming, it's a rival. For the coming again of this same God-man Jesus to come and wrap everything up. Maranatha, Jesus. This is why we can talk and live with the idea of living in the already and not yet. Do you guys know that phrase? The already that has happened is Jesus coming the first time. The not yet is the anticipating coming again. Isaiah lived and wrote chapter 11 only in the not yet. This writing by him is not wishful thinking. This is not a prediction that he hopes comes true. Isaiah's writing, he's going, Oh gosh, I hope this happens. Isaiah is not sending positive thoughts into the future in hopes that it will cause this coming kingdom to actually happen. As if if we all had positive thoughts and it would make the thing happen. That's not what Isaiah is writing here. He is writing this with full confidence in a God that can accomplish what he says he will do. Look at the language here. Look at the number of shalls and wills used to describe what this future shoot of Jesse will do. Our hope is made even stronger because God did an already. And He strengthens our hope for it to happen yet again. God did it the first time in a powerful way, in the most powerful way. Jesus said in John 19, It is finished. Not, I am done with part one. The first advent gives the possibility of a second advent that much more credibility. Note also at the start of chapter 11 here, the spirit's involvement. This is key. In verse two, we see that the quality of what the quality of this person is. And this quality comes by the presence and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Capital S here and not just a capital, but also the spirit of the Lord. Says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of, the, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isn't it Isn't this interesting? Remember this thought now as I reference what Jesus says in the Gospel of John and last evening with the disciples before the, Christi- uh, before the crucifixion. Listen to that. Keep that in mind. As he, This is what Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room the last evening before he dies. That's John fourteen twenty five through 27. He doesn't stop there in what he says about the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. This is a, a lengthy section of Jesus' words uh, to his followers and to us. He's saying this to his followers and he's saying this to us. He says this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going, going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper being the spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. and that the Father has his mind, all that the Father has his mind, therefore I said that all he, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus here is talking about this spirit coming. He's going to send the spirit about what is to come. And he will lead us in the truth and, and show us what is to come. That's John 20 verses 4 through 15. This same spirit that Jesus says will be with his followers is the same one written about 700 years earlier by Isaiah in chapter 11. This spirit who rests upon the one who will judge righteously, the one of wisdom and understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This same spirit that is with us now. How do I know? Well, I remember you remember I quoted the verse in Acts 1 8 and you will receive power. It doesn't say You might receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this happened in Acts 2, where it says this. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this is yet reinforced by God through the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 2, he says this Paul writes, In him also, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Jesus promises it. Luke records it in Acts, witnessed by the apostles, and Paul reinforces it in his letter to the Ephesians. So we, are not, only, we not only have a surety of a second Advent coming and, and the Spirit coming to be with us, because Isaiah previewed it, but we have the evidence of Jesus' coming in the first Advent. And we, also, we are also affirmed by the coming and presence of the Holy Spirit, who is with us by Jesus' promise and Paul's words in Ephesians. In this advent, between the advents, we have much to rely on for our lives now and the already, and also for the coming not yet. Whether in life or death, we cannot dismiss a promise from God. When, he, when we make promises here on earth, there is always the risk of them being broken by our own weaknesses or selfishness. But God has no weakness, he has no brokenness to speak of, that his promises would ever miss. In fact, Isaiah writing this chapter and his entire book is evidence of exactly that. God's people breaking their word to God about following him and God's ever firm righteousness that his his promise to lead us to him and to accomplish his purpose will always happen and never fail. Do we believe this? God help our unbelief. So we are strongly held by God in this advent between the advents. But what of the case of the specific hymn Isaiah writes about? The specific hymn is, is a faith or trust in a person, a being, not anything else. Not a di- different force, not a distant God, an impersonal God. Let's go back and sit with Isaiah in 700 B.C. When he wrote his work, he was living with a long history behind him of the importance of the nation of Israel, the people of God. The Israelites began way back in Genesis 12 when God made his first promise to Abraham. This continued through Isaac, his son, and Isaac's sons, Jacob. And from Jacob, of course, came the sons whom the 12 tribes of Israel were divided into and bore their names, including Joseph, who preserved them in Egypt. Joseph's two sons were ones that tribes were named for. From those 12 sons, And Joseph came Moses and Aaron, who God used to lead them out of the slavery of Egypt. Joshua led them into the promised land. From there came Samson and Gideon, the prophet Samuel, when the first kingdom was established with Saul as their first monarch. His successor was David, a man after God's own heart, whose son was the wise one Solomon, who built the first temple. From there, the history of Israel gets more severe and the kingdoms divided into north called Israel and south called Judah. It is here where Isaiah lived and was called forth. Through all these ins and outs, through the wars and divisions, God ever remained faithful. And in this faithfulness, a consistent message was always mentioned. That of a Messiah from the line of the house of David would appear. And he would save his people and transform the world. It's interesting, Note as an aside, in the commentary I read, they don't use... From the house of David, they say a shoot will come up from Jesse, from the stump of Jesse. And the idea there is our minds aren't supposed to go to King David in his, in his strength and uh, his leadership. It's to go back to the day he was called by God as a shepherd. Not the house of David. It was a shoot of Jesse. A time is never mentioned by Isaiah, nor a name, except by general reference, like in Isaiah 7, which Brett preached about a few Sundays back, first Advent Sunday. The name Emmanuel, which seems more like a title than a name. This history of Isaiah's also appears rather clearly in chapter 11, this history of a coming Messiah. A specific hymn is mentioned over and over again. In this chapter, a hymn, he, and his is used 22 times. This chapter even gets descriptive about this hymn. This hymn is described, as using human, uh, described using human characteristics. This hymn, he feels delight. He breathes. He has a mouth. He has a waist and a loins. He has hands. This hymn also acts, has actions, like resting, verse 10. This hymn recovers or gathers in verse 11 and 12. This hymn communicates. Raises signals. Verse 12. This may may seem like an obvious or simple observation, but that doesn't mean it is any less important. To say Jesus is the reason for the season may seem trite, but it is nevertheless true. Isaiah didn't know who the specific hymn was, but we have the privilege of knowing. The challenge... This challenges other beliefs about the ultimate realities of this world. If you believe there is an impersonal force or God, Isaiah 11 challenges this belief. Distant gods or impersonal forces aren't described like this. Distant gods don't gather or recover or communicate through signaling, as Isaiah's does. Impersonal forces don't feel delight or have breath, as Isaiah's does. This is what distinguished Isaiah's God and distinguishes our God from all others. And this is what distinguishes our Lord Jesus of Nazareth from all others. The specific hymn, Jesus, is in fact the reason for the season. Islam Islam can't conceive of a God uh, soiling himself in a human body. Buddhism speaks of an ultimate state of indifference or stoic emptiness. Christianity celebrates a God who became flesh and lived among us. Christianity believes in a man of sorrows who suffered, died, and rose again, and will come again. How should this impact our lives now? now? I'm speaking now here to my brothers and sisters who claim Christ as their Lord. My brothers and sisters who live with me in this Advent between the Advents, I would ask you, how are you adventing? It's a new word. Even this year. As we approach the celebration of Christmas, as you see, or as you're seeing it, as celebrating the unique event that happened 2,000 years ago, or are you simply celebrating it as a year of getting gifts, time off, and yeah, that religious stuff is thrown in for good measure? I love the gifts. I love the gifts. I love the time, had to be watching uh, the great uh, Christmas movies that my wife and I enjoy. I love the feelings and notions of good cheer and the annual traditions. I love the cookies and cakes and the seething bowls of punch. That was for you, Stephen. Probably a little too much. But are you seeing it as even more than these? C.S. Lewis called uh, called this having a child's heart with an adult's head in mere Christianity. We needed a child's heart. This is from Scripture. And an adult's head. C.S. Lewis wrote about this uh, this way. He, Jesus, told us to be not only as harmless as doves, but also as wise as serpents. He wants a child's heart, but a grown up's head. He wants us to be simple, single minded, affectionate and teachable as good children are. But he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and in first class fighting trim. It is, of course, quite true that God will not love you any the less or have less use for you if you happen to have been born with a very second-rate brain. He has room for people with very little sense, but he also wants everyone to use what sense they have. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. That is why an uneducated believer like Bunyan was able to write a book that has astonished the whole world. That's the end quote from Lewis. That book was Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Brothers and sisters, as you're approaching this Advent, not only with the enjoyment of the celebratory aspects that I mentioned and that I love, which is exercising our wonder as a child's heart, but also are you using your mind as well? When we celebrate Advent, we join Isaiah and say, come Messiah, come. When we celebrate Advent, we join our Lord Sorry. When we celebrate Advent, we join our Lord on the shores of Galilee and say Jesus I believe, help my unbelief. When we celebrate Advent, we wait with those who have believed since Jesus for the heavens to be rolled back as a scroll. And the trumpet to sound and all of us to be transformed in the blink of an eye. I invite you in this season to reread Isaiah, to use your mind and imagine yourself rereading it with Isaiah as if he was seeing what we see, celebrating the first coming of the shoot of Jesse he wrote about. Second point of application. As you exercise your child heart and adult's head, are you doing this in the spirit? This same spirit promised to us by Jesus. He has said we would be filled and empowered to witness for him if we did. How do you do that? It's a very it's very simple. You ask. (laughs) That's pretty simple. That's how you that's how he said to do it. Here is the reasoning for how to be filled with the spirit. Think about this. First, confess any sins. In 1 John 1, 1.9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all un- unrighteousness. Once you do that, confess your sins, second, you ask to be filled. In John 14.14, 14, Jesus said to his disciples and sub- subsequently to us, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But the Apostle John wrote more on this in 1 John 5.14 when he wrote, And this is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we must ask is it God's will to be filled with the Spirit? And this is the third thing to do after confessing and asking trust that it is true. Is it God's will that we be filled with the Spirit? If it is God's will and I ask him to fill me, will he? Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So, confess, ask, and trust. God promised he would do what he wills for us if we asked. And his will is that we be filled. So, if he says, I will do anything that is according to my will for you, if you ask in my name, So And he said, be filled with the Spirit. So he says he's promised and he's commanded that we do it. So if we ask, he's promised and commanded, so we should be filled. That seems simple, but that's a filling of the Holy Spirit. Confess, ask, trust. God promised he would do what he wills for us if we asked, and his will is that we be filled. Do we trust that? Third point of application is for those who perhaps have doubts or don't believe. The prediction of a coming savior seems to be rather clear in the Bible and having been written about for a very long time. Isaiah wrote about it 2,700 years ago or less than three days ago. And others wrote about it well before him and well after him as well. Christians, for thousands of years, and I claim that that Messiah is in fact Jesus of Nazareth. Fight me! I say, fight me! <laughs> Christmas is a Christian Christian celebration of his first appearance on Earth as a baby, born of a virgin, Mary, and who and her betrothed, Joseph. We claim he, Jesus, lived the perfect life to fulfill the law. And as such, he was able then to die the atoning death to meet that law's justice. This is where all justice gets fulfilled. We talk a lot about justice this season in our lives in this history moment. But all justice is fulfilled in this act. He was able to die the atoning death to meet law's justice. He was the only one who could. And we claim that Jesus rose again from the grave and defeated death because, again, he was the only one who could. I invite you, if you have doubts or don't believe, to consider that. I invite you to believe it. You'll never be the same. You'll be even better. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Advent Good Wishes by David Grieve. Give you joy, Wolf, when Messiah comes, when Messiah makes you meek and turns your roar into a cry that justice has been done for the poor Give you joy, Lamb, when Messiah saves you from jeopardy and all fears overwhelmed by his converting grace. Give you joy, wolf and lamb, together as Messiah brings worldwide peace and side by side you shelter under Jesse's spreading shoot. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these words of 2,700 years ago of Isaiah that... uh, There will be a day where peace will prevail so much that predator and prey will lie down together and there will be no fear of poisonous snakes. There will be no more war. There will be no more strife or division. And it won't be just because you will it. It will be because we know it's true. And we will all believe it in its purity. Thank you for this season of looking back at your first coming. And uh, at the same time that we anticipate your second coming. We do. We do pray. Maranatha, Jesus, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name. Amen.